Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following program has language that might be offensive depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding understanding of the language. It's Friday, April 1st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Amazon workers have voted to unionize in Staten Island, a big deal because it is the first union in Amazon history. The New York Times put the win in perspective, saying, quote, the win on Staten Island could herald a new era for labor unions in the United States which saw the portion of workers and unions drop last year to 10.3%. And that percentage is, talking now is Mike, not the New York Times, you can tell by the slight change in intonation. That percentage is the lowest point it's ever been. So talk of a new era, I guess that means a new era of robust union membership. I would say before you get there, you have to get to someplace other than your lowest point ever. The New York Times is clearly interested in, you might say, invested in the idea of Amazon unionizing. Last year, when there was a union drive around Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama plant, the newspaper ran 67 separate articles about it. The paper of record showed a lot more interest in Amazon unionizing than the actual workers of Amazon's Bessemer plant. That vote failed 738 pro-union, 1,798 anti-union. Turnout was 54% of the ballots sent out. But the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, agreed with union supporters that Amazon had broken rules, set up mailboxes too close to the front gates, and the pandemic quashed in-person appeals. So there was a new vote, which happened alongside the Staten Island vote. And the early count was turnout fell to 38.6%. And once again, the union failed. Now, the retail, wholesale, and department store union is challenging and contesting ballots. Amazon's contesting its own ballots. It does seem that, at least the early reports, indicate the vote failed. So Bessemer will not lead the way in organizing. Staten Island would. It makes sense. Almost a quarter of New York workers are unionized. In Alabama, it's about 6%. Also in New York, employment opportunities are plentiful. In Alabama, less so. And in Alabama, Amazon's starting wage of about $16 an hour, more than double the minimum wage. In New York, Amazon's 18-ish starting wage, just a touch higher than the minimum wage. So a great victory for Amazon workers in New York. But it seems once more a defeat, an actual defeat in Alabama, and one that might not be explained entirely by dirty campaign tactics or worker intimidation. In the coverage of the 2021 vote that I read in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, there were always quotes from numerous labor law professors talking about the dirty tactics of Amazon. 
The New York Times did have a good profile of anti-union Bessemer workers, but other than that, there's only one outlet that I saw which offered a notably different narrative than Amazon plays dirty. These union workers don't know or were tricked into voting the way they voted. That exception to the dominant narrative was in The Nation, in an article titled, Blowout in Bessemer, a postmortem, Jane McAlevey argued, quote, the media, especially the genre of media called the labor media, should never have overhyped this campaign. More typical was the LA Times article talking about the failed Bessemer vote, quote, some experts said the defeat reflected historical weaknesses in U.S. labor law, the difficulty of uniting workers in a weakened economy, and the political challenge of checking corporations that espouse progressive values even as they aggressively oppose unions. Yes, but other experts say that for the workers, the benefits of a union did not outweigh the costs. And those experts were the actual workers in the Alabama plant. In Staten Island, it was a different cost-benefit analysis. And in both cases, I would say voters, workers who were voting and acting in their self-interest made choices guided by rationality. That possibility was routinely discounted in the coverage. The unwillingness to actually take those Alabama workers at their word was rampant. Now, in Staten Island, the workers are being taken at their word, which is the word, yes, to the union, that the genre of media called labor media are quite supportive of. On the show today, I spiel about the game-ending tactic that could draw a trailing basketball team closer in a hurry. It is a key to March Madness. You know it. It is the three-pointer. Or, as so many basketball announcers tell you these days, the shot you don't need. But first, we check in on how China's neighbors are evaluating the Ukraine war and see what it means for smaller countries living next to bigger ones with powerful militaries who might want to grab up their neighbors and never let go. And we're going to do this by starting with, I know the international content you're clamoring for, the Solomon Islands, the chain of islands in the South Pacific. They have a bigger population than Wyoming and Vermont, And it's now been revealed they have a secret deal with the Chinese. No longer a secret. Australia, New Zealand, U.S., they're worried. But the leader, not King Solomon, the president of the Solomon Islands, he says, don't worry, no military bases. Mm Mm-hmm. Jonah Blank gets all Solomonic up in here, up next. The Solomon Islands, you may know them from such pieces of paper as maps. They are some dots in the Pacific, but they were very important, of course, during World War II. You know, I say of course, but that's a little degrading. I would like to tell you that they were very important during World War II because you've probably heard of the Battle of Guadalcanal, and that was on the Solomon Islands. And that points out that even tiny dots in the Pacific are very important in terms of military and in terms of naval warfare. And in that context, in a roundabout way, the Solomon Islands are back in the news because they've signed a treaty with China, and this makes New Zealand, Australia, and the United States very, very nervous. Why would dots of land in the Pacific do that to great powers? 
here to explain is Jonah Blank. He's a senior political scientist at RAND and a senior research fellow at the National Research University of Singapore and uh, a senior guest of the gist, I think, is your status by now, Jonah. Thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. It's always such a pleasure to be here. So let's talk Solomon Islands. Uh, What, about 800,000 people live there? They're real... Hey, everyone's important in this world, but their real importance to great powers is tactical and the fact that they're a great place to land a plane on for a while or dock a ship at, right? That's part of it. But I would say their importance is the fact that they exist. Um, China has been looking all over the world for the, for decades for any nations that are willing to switch their um, their allegiance from, mm-hmm. say, recognizing uh, Taiwan to recognizing China. They were successful in that in most cases. Uh, their next step is trying to get na- every nation they can find to ally themselves either formally or informally with them instead of with the U.S. So China doesn't typically do uh, treaty ally- alliances. However, it does do really close partnerships, and it's willing to pay a lot of money to get those. And this can become uh, a a process that builds on itself. One nation sees another nation doing it and thinks, hey, maybe we might like to do this too. So what's the importance of the Solomon Islands? I would argue it's less important in terms of the tactical uh, military uh, impact, more important in the diplomatic signal that it may send to other nations. You know, I did see Australia especially, uh, I don't want to use a highly technical diplomatic term, but freaking out a bit over this new lack of recognition of Taiwan, new recognition of uh, Beijing. Why was Australia so upset about this? Well, I think the technical Australian term is having an argy-bargy. Uh-huh, um, yeah. But uh, they, uh, they haven't quite gotten full argy-bargy yet. Australia is the power that has... The, mo- the most of a proprietary interest in South Pacific territories that nobody else really pays all that close attention to. Some of that is because they are the closest ones to them. They have the greatest interest in them. Another part of it is simply a legacy of history. Uh, some of these are either current or former uh, parts of the uh, British Empire. I would say actually former in all but a very small number of uh, places. Uh, So they have a little bit of shared history, but it also means that when Australians are going out into the wide world, uh, this is sort of their backyard, even though the distances are pretty extreme. So the prime minister of the Solomon Islands, I'll I'll try to say his name correctly, uh, Manasa Sogavare, he pretty much campaigned, interesting political career. He is the opposition when he's not in power, and then when he is in power, he's the prime minister. So I think this is like his fourth term, and he's in power, out of power, in power, out of power. And he basically said, okay, we're going to be aligning with China. And many in the Solomon Islands or other you know important power brokers from different provinces said, no, you are not. And so there's a bit of not just our uh, international relations being called into play, but there's a bit of a civil war and unrest within the islands about this decision. Will that affect anyone's decision-making in the future? It might, because uh, this is this is a decision that doesn't have very deep roots in society. Uh, 
the population of the Solomon Islands have uh, pretty deep uh, linkages with a lot of the other Pacific territories. They've got cultural linkages going back thousands of years. I mean, the, the history of uh, the South Pacific Islands is really fascinating. You know, this is the, anth- I'm an anthropologist by background, so I can go off in weird geeky uh, tangents. Uh, if yeah. I'm a, well, n- <laughs> That's <laughs> um, that's a dangerous invitation. Okay. Um, in this case, I'm I'm uh, happy to go back to it, but it's but in terms of why the anthropology matters is just that the Solomon Islands do have really deep connections with uh, with a number of the other islands in the South Pacific. However, in more recent years, the past few hundred years, say. Their closest ties to uh, great powers uh, largely have been Australia, Britain, um, the kind of English speaking uh, communities. That's where they go to educate their kids. That's where they go on vacation. They don't really have any cultural or political ties to China. So this is really a transactional um, action that is that the prime minister has taken. Now, countries do things for transactional reasons all the time, but uh, one can see why any members of the political class that were not cut into this transaction then they, uh, they're not really getting anything out of this. Uh, so either China has not spread the liberality, uh, quite as widely as perhaps it should have, or, uh, maybe you've got some people who, um, are thinking this is a good way of going from being the opposition to getting back into being in power. Yeah. And how this worked out, I mean, it was, there was a, a leaked draft of a memorandum. And so I would assume that the people leaking the draft didn't like what was uh, implied or what was in the offing, which is China perhaps using Solomon Islands as a military base. And the prime minister did at least walk that back with words. No, we're having a deal, the transaction you talked about, but it's not going to include a military base. If it were to include a military base, if he, you know, if if the temperature comes down a little bit in the near term, and then all of a sudden, you know, China is building this military base, what will the Western powers do? Um, well, they'll probably, uh, they'll probably laugh because it would be a huge waste of money for China. Uh, you know, the Solomon Islands are just not that strategic. They're not close enough to the parts of the Pacific that China cares about. China cares very much about the South China Sea, about the areas within what it calls the, uh, the nine dash line. Uh, that's a, a much more, um, militarily important scenario. If China wanted to put the uh, the expense into building a base, it would be pretty easy for the U.S., Australia, and the adversaries to cut off supply or at least make it so difficult that it would be a, a white elephant. Uh, China typically does not really want to build military bases. What it wants to do is build dual access uh, facilities. Things like uh, Gwadar in Pakistan, uh, things like some naval facilities in uh, Djibouti, uh, things like uh, two two ports in Sri Lanka, uh, a, a number of facilities in Myanmar, um, in various other places. It likes to build facilities that it can use for that it in any country can use, but that it has sort of a proprietary uh, interest in using. So it builds them to its own specifications. It could use them uh, in time of war. It uh, has port calls by uh, PLA uh, Navy, uh, that is the Chinese Navy, uh, but it doesn't really like to build actual bases. Mm. And for what it's worth, the United States doesn't either. The um, uh, the U.S. Uh, phrase on that is places, not bases. It, it likes access 
rather than the expense and the political blowback of actually building something that you own. Uh, much better to rent than to own. Yeah, at least with an option to buy. Yeah. Um, so while I have you there, uh, you, a uh, former staffer of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and all your expertise in the region, just tell me how the major international event of the present, the war in Ukraine, tell me how that is playing in Asia. Yeah, well, everybody is following it quite closely. And they're looking at it not through the eyes of how does this affect Europe? How does this affect NATO? How does this affect the US and Russia? They're looking at it more about what's the implication going to be for another really big non-democratic state that has some territorial ambitions among its uh, its neighbors. Uh, China, as we know, is not just um, supporting uh, Vladimir Putin's bid uh, informally, uh, but very decisively. Uh, it also is watching Vladimir Putin's bid. Uh, Xi Jinping is looking right. at every aspect of this. And in the region, there are a lot of smaller nations that are um, having to reshuffle all of their assumptions about what China would and wouldn't do what the United States might do and what they should be doing in response to this very different world we're in now. So I guess the problem for all the other nations is it's really not a perfect analogy. Uh, China's different from Russia. Putin's different from uh, Sh uh, Chairman Xi. And, you know, maybe the one solid uh, conclusion is that thus far, the Western alliance has been really firm, maybe firmer than people would have thought. But I wonder how many solid conclusions you could draw on the fact that the Russian military apparatus seems to have been really ill-trained, ill-prepared, the, the battle plans were ill-conceived. You know, you have to assume that China wouldn't fall into those traps, for instance. And yet, uh, those were exactly the assumptions that many of us, myself included, uh, failed to make about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, right. I, along with just about everybody else, there are a few who, are, who called this right, but you know, I would say most of the supposedly smart people thought that uh, Putin would certainly win in, uh, in six weeks' time. The only question mm -hmm. was, would it be a matter of days or weeks? China, we should remember has not fought a real war since 1979 um, when it uh, had a border war with Vietnam, which it did not really win. So I'm sure that she is looking at what happened to the Russian military and thinking, hmm, you know, before I start uh, getting too confident, let me run uh, some internal checks and make sure that I know exactly what we can and can't do. Right. Another major factor was the determination and the capabilities of the Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian citizens helping the forces, but the forces. And would there be an analog to that with, say, Taiwan? I think there would be because for I, th I think it's actually a, a pretty good comparison because Ukraine and Russia are not really pure competitors. Um, Russia is militarily stronger than Ukraine. However, uh, when a militarily stronger country simply invades another country, uh, that does not necessarily go well. The U.S. learned that in Iraq uh, and in Afghanistan. 
<laughs> the Russians learned that in Afghanistan as well, but haven't remembered it. Likewise, in Taiwan, Taiwan is not on the same level as uh, the People's Republic militarily, but it is, it's not a fifth rate uh, military power. It's mm -hmm. quite a capable uh, second or third tier military power. And if you have, uh, if you're faced with an invasion, if you're faced with an existential threat, that really does bring out a lot of fighting spirit in people. So I think one of the lessons here is that there's a big difference between what is sometimes called salami slicing, you know, what Putin did to Ukraine in Donbass and in Crimea and, you know, what he might have gotten away with if he had contented himself with just slicing another few pieces of that salami. That's very different from taking the whole, uh, the whole salami home with you. And Taiwan faces that same thing. If the PRC attacks, it's not going to be just slicing off a little piece there. Well, let me use another meat-based analogy with you. China is like the stray dog licking its lips as it eyes the juicy side of beef or ham in the butcher's window. Mm -hmm. China is that way towards Taiwan. But what else, what other delectables might China wish to acquire as its own that aren't the main course? Okay, well, let me let me spin, let me try to spin this metaphor out a little more. I I, I don't I, I'm not buying on to the full metaphor of anything involving a uh, you know a dog for this country that country just so that people in my part of the world don't uh, don't get angry at me. Uh, yeah. But if China were to uh, engulf Taiwan, it would have to deal with some serious indigestion, which is exactly the problem that Vladimir Putin is going to have if he were to succeed in conquering Ukraine. Uh, what I had thought uh, was that, sure, he could probably conquer Ukraine and install a puppet government, but he can't keep it. Uh, he would be fighting uh, a, a, a daily insurgency at a level that would just be utterly unsustainable. Well, he hasn't even got to that stage. Um, I think the same thing would happen if China were to take over Taiwan. I think it's a, a very big question about whether they could succeed in taking it. Uh, but if they did take it, it's not as if the people of Taiwan would just say, hey, that's okay, you, you got it, you win. We, we speak basically the same language, so we don't care. This is a, a, you know, this is a fallacy that I think a lot of people have. And living here in Singapore, where 75% of the country is ethnic Chinese, and most of them speak either Mandarin or one of the Southern Chinese dialects as a second language. Uh, some of them speak it fluently, some of them speak it not as fluently, but uh, that 75% say they see themselves as Singaporeans. They do not see themselves as sort of China with a, an asterisk. And uh, that, that goes at least as much for Taiwan. Why wouldn't the, the world should be taking lessons from Russia and Ukraine? But I would assume they've taken plenty of lessons from the United States. One lesson being mm -hmm. that in the uh, 21st century, an occupational force certainly has its work cut out for it don't know that we've seen too many successful examples of that. <laughs> and yet Putin uh, waited half a year before uh, going and doing the same thing for a much more uh, difficult country, it would seem. Yeah. Certainly a country with a much more capable military and a lot more land to, uh, to hold on to. 
Yo, well, I've surmised on the show that his lesson was, well, we're not going to occupy with the uh, baby tactics of the United States. You know, we're going to go hard and we're going to go merciless and probably said to himself, Syria went pretty well. If we uh, if we occupy as, you know, a real strong man's army does, we'll win this thing. And he was wrong. And that worked that worked so well for them uh, back in the 1980s. That's right. That's right. Uh. Jonah Blank is a senior political scientist at RAND, and he's with the National Research University of Singapore. He's also author of Arrow of the Blue-Skinned God. Jonah, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. You're playing in the NCAA tournament. You're down late in a tight game. You're going to need grit, perseverance, athleticism, smarts. But apparently there's one thing you almost never need. They don't need a three. Well, you don't need a three. I mean, you don't need a three in this situation. Don't need a three here. The three-point shot is clearly a friend to the trailing team with time dwindling. But according to all these announcers, you just don't need one. Three-point game. Akenjo to tie it. No, short. Baycott clears the rebound. Didn't need it. I thought that was a little bit too early. In some situations, this is technically true. Not making a three-pointer won't actually take your chances of winning to zero. You told these guys, don't foul. Get a quick deuce here if you can. You're down five. You don't need a three. You just need a basket. In that game, there were 33 seconds left, and Memphis was down five. Memphis didn't need a three, they didn't get a three, and they lost. But in other situations, the announcers will say it just because these words seem to be part of the wise announcers who know never to panic creed. Now you got to keep the ball in front, and you got to look to attack if you're Wisconsin. You do not need the three necessarily, you need to score quickly. Davis misses. That was when Wisconsin was down seven points with 35 seconds left to play. Deb Antonelli saying you don't need a three? Unless the next phrase is, because you're not going to win anyway, you could very well use a three. It is true, there are often, technically, paths to success that don't include making a three-pointer, but left unacknowledged is just how much harder it is to make a comeback without threes. The typical late-game strategy when trailing is for your team to score, then to foul your opponent. This puts him or her in the women's tournament on the free-throw line, where they can make up to two points. But you see how the math works here? You score a two-pointer, then allow your opponent to make up to two points, it leaves you in the position of never making up ground, but a three, so tantalizing because so forbidden, allows you to eat into your opponent's lead, even if the opponent is nailing free throws. Plus, and follow me on this, a three is worth 50% more than a two. Don't tell it to Steve Lapis. But you don't have to take three now. Or Grant Hill. You don't need a three in this situation, but something quick would be good if you're USC. Or Jim Spinarkle. I would think that Purdue would try to get a quick hitter here. They don't need a three. All of those teams said to not need a three, didn't get a three, and they all lost. Here's an example of an open-ended dialogue between a play-by-play -play announcer and the color announcer, Lisa Byington, earnestly asking Avery Johnson if he thought 
They needed a three. Does it have to be a three? Do you go for a three here? No, you don't need a three. You need the best shot. Here's Brian Anderson asking his partner, Jim Jackson, a similar question. Creighton Ball here set us up for this possession. Well, you don't need a three. I mean, it's been your ally 12 for 26 from behind the three-point line. If you get a drive and kick, you take it. Wow. There was 49 seconds left. Creighton was down three points, and they had already made 12 three-pointers. The only reason they were in this game against top-ranked Kansas was that they were making three-pointers. Creighton, being advised there against shooting three-pointers, was shooting 46% from three-point land and 29% from anywhere closer to the basket. In that case, I would say, actually, you can't risk a two. Jim Jackson is apparently so three-averse that in his next game, his play-by-play announcer, Brian Anderson, practically told him, Jim, just tell everyone that they need a three. Let's hear Jim's answer to that. Remaining, so if you're Houston, you haven't shot the three ball well all night, but you got to have them at this point, Jim. Well, you do. But here it comes. Well, you do, but if you can get a quick two, try to set up your defense and see if you can force a turnover. Especially if you can funnel Villanova to the corner. Now, if three is available, you take Yeah, that didn't work. Houston lost. Why do all these announcers hate threes? They advise against taking the shot more than a guest on Joe Rogan. I have a theory. Announcers are of a little older generation than players and coaches. They're a little conservative, a little cranky, a little out of touch with the makeability and the glory of the three. They treat college players like they're all too impulsive, not patient, prone to lose their heads. All this argues for the slow and steady pursuit of the two-pointer. But it doesn't comport with the three-pointer as it's currently understood. A viable option to pursue in almost any situation, and especially in late-game situations while trailing. There's also an assumption that the non-three, the two-pointer, is just so easy. But it's not. Have you seen how tall some of those guys around the basket are? Announcers are treating threes like their Hail Mary passes in football, or like their three-pointers from 1986, when they were new and scary and rare in the college game. Here's Steve Lapis accusing Memphis of pursuing what actually is optimal strategy. They were clearly looking for a three-point shot there. But you don't have to look for a three-point shot where it's, you're willing to take a- I did find some exceptions to this triscophobia. The great announcers like Bill Raftery and Ian Eagle don't instinctively warn against the three. And then there was this guy. If you can come down and score a three quickly, perhaps you don't have to foul. Oh, that was Reggie Miller before Steph Curry, the greatest three-point shooter in the history of basketball. At least Reggie Miller didn't abandon his muse, his instrument, his moneymaker. So many of our anointed sages are wont to doubt the power of the three and then quick to bury the shooter who fails to bury the three. Seem a little desperate with the threes. Too, too fast. We are all desperate for the three. We live by the three and die by the three. We've redefined the game around the three. But our announcers can never seem to admit it. And if you're USC, Arizona, TCU, Davidson, Baylor, UCLA, a whole lot of other teams who didn't get that one clutch three, you know just how much you need the three. The three is really, really, really important. It's worth so much. One more than the two, but infinitely more than the three never taken. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, just assistant producer, is deadly from the outside. 
Joel Patterson, just senior producer, his range inside the gym. Michelle Pesca can catch and shoot and create off the dribble for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oompru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>